0: Hey, welcome to In the Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost, and today on the podcast, uh, I have the great pleasure of bringing to you a conversation I had recently, very recently, last week with Dr. David Gushy, and uh, and I'm going to do this a little bit in the podcast over the next while, which is although we'll still speak to particular themes and series as we're going along, and I've just done a couple of episodes exploring the language of. The devil and evil and demons and so on, and uh, and shortly we're going to be talking about matters of uh, antichrist and marks of the beast and other stuff that uh, is language very familiar to some people within the Christian tradition, but also uh, sometimes in not particularly helpful ways. Uh, but I'm also wanting to bring in some conversations from time to time with different people that I find uh, interesting. Worthwhile, compelling, And this conversation with David Gushy was certainly one of those. If you don't know David and his work, he's, uh, he's a longtime ethicist and theologian, but in particular published a work in 2014 called Changing Our Mind, which was about full LGBT inclusion within the church and advocating for that on theological and ethical and spiritual grounds and pastoral grounds and um, and so my conversation with him is an exploration of that work, the responses to that work, and what's kind of happened for him since, uh, in terms of how he makes sense of the last five, six, seven years. We talk about all sorts of things from um, from LGBT issues and homophobia within the church. Uh, so be mindful of that if that's triggering for you. Um, we also talk about Trump and what Trump has uh, revealed about American evangelicalism. We talk about some of the, the real toxicities that lie within American evangelicalism and what to do about some of that, and offer some alternative ways of thinking about faith moving forward that might be more helpful, compelling, healthy, and important for us as we move beyond uh, whatever it is that we've come from. So we cover a lot of ground and we talk about all sorts of things in the midst of that. And I, I found the conversation really uh, interesting and rewarding. Uh, I must say that I, because of where David lives, I had to get up and talk to him at three o'clock in the morning, New Zealand time. So there I was, I was just taking a hit for the team, for you, my lovely listeners, uh, to, to be up at that time. But uh, hopefully uh, you can't tell in, in my weary voice uh, that, that that was the time of day or night, Um, but it was a lovely time of day for him, and so it worked for both of us. Uh, So just before we jump into the conversation with David, uh, just a reminder that, of course, you can always get in touch with me via email, michael at com, or you can go to the various social media sites, or you can support the work of the podcast at Patreon. Uh, And I'd love to hear from you, love to hear what questions are buzzing around your head, what thoughts you've got going on, tell me a story, Um, let me know a bit about who you are, and why you're finding this podcast. Um relevant to you. Um, in the meantime, here's the conversation with David. So today on the podcast, I'm joined by Dr. David Gushy. David is Distinguished University Professor of Christian Ethics at Mercer University. Some of his uh, many books include uh, Kingdom Ethics, The Sacredness of Human Life, Changing Our Mind, and uh, more recently, After Evangelicalism. So thanks so much, David, for coming on the show. Really appreciate you taking
1: the time. Thank you for the invitation, Michael, and greetings to uh, my friends uh, in New Zealand. Yeah, thank and you, and maybe some new friends too.
0: Um, so I wanted to I wanted to start perhaps by going uh, back a few years to pre two thousand and fourteen, David Gushy, perhaps. Um, and from my sense of of reading your work, uh, you would have identified it at, in some way at this point in in your life as. As an evangelical ethicist and, and theologian i I first bumped into your work when i was um when I was teaching theology at a Pentecostal Bible college, and kingdom ethics was being used as an ethics text for, wow. for one of our classes and so I was a Pentecostal and you were an evangelical and uh, and now you've written a book called after evangelicalism and I'm running a podcast called in the <laughs> Um and uh, and so I want to I think a little or ask you a little bit about that kind of process and that journey and, and how that kind of brings you to the point you are now and, and some of the things you're now talking about. Um, I think admittedly, in, in your words, you sat more to the progressive side of evangelicalism through your time. Um, but there's this book that you write, Changing Our Mind, which uh, calls for full LGBTQ inclusion in the church. Um, and it seems that a lot kind of changes as a result of the publishing of that book for you. Um, before maybe we get to the change, are you are you able to talk a little bit about um, how that book kind of comes to be written? What's the impetus for that? Um, perhaps especially for those who maybe haven't come across it before. What so what's the lead up to this to this point?
1: You know, what's interesting, Michael, is um, is it's like I had a kind of a, a career that was not all that untypical. Um, I was an academic who also was also a church person, you know, so I ordained Baptist minister, uh, pastored churches part-time, um, Christian ethicist. Um, and so the, the if people knew about me, they knew about me as having written a book that maybe they had had to use in school and maybe they liked it or maybe they didn't. But mm-hmm. But, you know, there's a kind of a typical career, right? Uh, academic who writes books. Yeah. Right? Okay. Um, when I, and where I was positioned, as I've written more recently, was in the progressive wing of the American evangelical movement. Uh, and that is people like Ron Sider, a Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, and Jim Wallace of Sojourners, and um, uh, sometimes called Peace and Justice Evangelicals, names like Shane Claiborne, people like that, right? Mm. Uh, um, and the the problem, I think, partly was that I think that that world was never as large and robust as I thought it was at the time. Yeah. It was more fragile, um, and especially in the U.S. setting, as our polarization has deepened, evangelicalism has come to be identified with reactionary attitudes about everything, um, conservative politics, the Republican. Party Trumpism, and so on. So anyway, when I wrote "Changing Our Mind," um, I I felt from about two thousand and ten on that I was increasingly less satisfied that the traditionalist posture on LGBT people was was beyond question. I had taught it, but I, I, I was. I was becoming more aware of the suffering of gay people. Um, Once I moved to Mercer University, I got to know more and more uh, gay Christian people and ex-Christian people. Um, And my kind of easy, well, you know, the Bible says this. And so therefore we want to be nice to LGBT people, but, you know, they can't really, they're not okay. And they can't really be equal uh, and, and share all the power and roles that we have. I was uneasy about it and increasingly felt, you know, I'm actually a rare evangelical who's in a position to ask questions about this in print because I have job security at a school that is not evangelical. Right, Mercer is not evangelical. It's kind of post Baptist with real academic freedom. And I was in a church where we were going through this journey ourselves and nobody was going to force me out. And so I had, I felt a responsibility to, explore, to wrestle with these questions kind of from the ground up. Mm. So I began writing a series of articles in the Baptist media in the U.S. Um, I wrote one a week, and I just kind of took on an aspect of the LGBT question, one a week for about 1,500 or 2,000 words. I did that for about four months. And I, I really, I did it open-ended. I did not know what the outcome was going to be. I, did, I had not figured everything out. I was I was doing a very dangerous thing. I was thinking out loud mm. in print. Um, increasingly, the further I went along, the more clear it was to me that I was changing my mind. I was changing my mind in the process of writing. And that the traditionalist perspective was damaging, and that it, instead of being ironclad, it should be revised. And that it was an aspect of Christian tradition that was wrongheaded, like many others in the past. So, yeah. unlike almost any other book you could ever imagine, because of who my publisher... Well, I was not it wasn't going to be a book, but a, a publisher contacted me in the process of writing these essays and saying, you should publish this as a book, we'd like to do that, and we have the ability to do this quickly when you finish the series, we can get this book out within a month. Right. And so that's what happened. I finished the series in like September or the book came out in like October. And then, um, and then everything went crazy for me. People who hadn't been paying attention to the series, they felt, they, they learned about it. It was, it was promoted in a big way. Jonathan Merritt wrote a big article about it in religion, News service. And I spoke at the reformation project conference and, and, what i thought was a careful entry into an evangelical conversation was interpreted as an abandonment of evangelicalism and certainly uh that i needed to be pushed out of evangelicalism to the extent that that is possible Mm -hmm. so that's what happened after that and and so what what was kind of an effort within my career became a career changing experience and so a lot of the trajectory for me in the last six years has been making sense of what has happened to me in the last six years. Right. Um, how does somebody get booted out of evangelicalism? What does it mean to be an evangelical? What did that category ever actually mean anyway? Who, who came up with it? Who defines who's in and who's out? And, um, and so my most recent book is, is um, well, I wrote a, a memoir called Still Christian where I kind of process this at a memoirish mm-hmm. kind of level. But this new book is like um, – Here's where I have ended up theologically and ethically, and maybe I can help a growing number, scads and scads, millions and millions of post-evangelicals or disillusioned evangelicals to find a way forward. And so you might say, as an ethicist, I became a theologian slash pastor to the post-evangelicals. And that's that's kind of the trajectory of the last seven years. Mm.
0: Um, before perhaps I asked you a, a couple of questions about that kind of um that kickback and that response and what that says or said about evangelicalism to you. Um you've mentioned there also the kind of the the opening up of a different kind of world. So so was there was there along with the kind of the big rush of of pushback from the evangelical world, was there this positive response as well from certain quarters to something like changing our mind?
1: Oh, it was massive on both sides. Mm. Um, my social my social accounts, you know, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and email uh, were filled with uh, massive amounts of response of completely opposite character. Mm. Uh, mainly it was the conservative Christians telling me that in delicious detail the many ways in which I was going to roast in hell, right, for having done this. Right. Um And then there were the oftentimes direct messages on Facebook from younger, uh, LGBT Christians and ex Christians who said, thank you. Uh, I heard your speech and then I read your book and now I'm not going to kill myself. Mm. Um, or my, my dad beat me up when I came out as gay. Oh. my pastor kicked me out. I need a dad. I need a pastor. Can I at least talk to you? Mm. Um, it was so intense mm. and so personal. Um, and then, of course, the you know the LGBT community came my way. Um, you know, the activist organizations as well as individuals. Um, I got to speak all over the place. Sometimes it was in schools or churches that were trying to figure out whether to change their minds, mm-hmm. but other times it was in contexts in which um, full acceptance had already, I mean, that was who they were, but they wanted me to come and be with them. They wanted to, to greet me and welcome me and, um, build, and, uh, create a relationship. One, one of the most memorable experiences was I was invited to preach at a Vesper service at a massive Episcopal church in San Francisco scheduled for the day after the Supreme Court decision in 2015, legalizing gay marriage in America. Mm-hmm. They anticipated, well, if, if it was a negative response, it was going to be a, a lament service. If it was a positive decision, it was going to be a celebration service. But neither one. They wanted me there. So I, 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 I preached at the Grace Cathedral in San Francisco in front of hundreds and hundreds of people, mainly LGBT. Um, and they were. it ended up being a celebration service. Mm. And um, I never would have found myself in spaces like that. I couldn't have imagined being invited or being interested in being in spaces like that. But, but what I found was people whom Jesus loves, whom the church had communicated contempt for. And, and I said, well, that's exactly where I need to be. I need to be there. And so it connected to earlier social justice fights I've been involved in or earlier research I've been involved in. Where is Jesus to be found? Jesus is to be found with the people whom the religious people reject, probably. And that's that's where I found myself. Yeah. And so it was very renewing for me spiritually. And also it renewed my sense of vocation and kind of moved me into a more, um, I don't know, a more anti-establishment, full-throated social justice kind of prophetic space than yeah. I had been in a long time. And that's where I think Christian ethicists belong. So... So now it makes total sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> it was hard at the time though. Um, but the pastoral side was very very tender. Like I would get right. I remember an uh, a direct message from a 17-year-old saying, "Um I'm going to be running away tomorrow because my parents reject me and I'm not safe here anymore. Um do you have any advice for me? I mean stuff like that, right. you know? Um crisis stuff." That's why I say now LGBT issues should be understood as as, um, at least as much as family issues and like as mental health issues and uh, sacredness of life issues because people are driven to suicidality because of the rejection they get in the hands of the church. Um, That's the kind of issue this is for me now. It's justice and human dignity and and human life Mm. The idea that this is mainly about who's allowed to have sex with who is a, is actually a misleading. It's not mm-hmm. really
0: about that at all. Um, it's interesting, I suppose, to – I would imagine that, you know, many of your other works did not invoke a flurry of the kind of invitations to that kind of pastoral work that, that this one did. I would I would imagine that's
1: – No, nothing like that ever.
0: Yeah. Um, and it's an interesting thing to to write a piece of work – about a processing of an idea, and find yourself now taking up this um, role or place for, for people in a community that are looking. I, guess, I suppose for, for people like that.
1: Yeah, I could never have imagined it. You know, at a spiritual level, um, I I'm enough of a believer still in the Holy Spirit to feel like I was being swept up by the Holy Spirit in something far bigger than me. But mm-hmm. I. I certainly had not intended. I had not planned. This was me taking up an issue like I had taken up other issues in the past, like uh, I'd written about the Holocaust. I'd written about marriage. I'd written about torture, uh, climate change. So I was going to take on another issue. I didn't realize that you might say I was taking in a whole community Mm. Um, and uh, and also going to be losing a whole community Mm. at the same time. It was wrenching. I lost a lot of night's sleep over it. Um, uh, But now I'm totally at peace that I was being used in a project that was far bigger than me, Mm. that I could not have engineered. I I never could have anticipated it. Mm. In
0: terms of that that reaction then from the evangelical community, which had been, you know, your community.
1: Yeah.
0: um, I'm assuming, you know, you've mentioned a little bit already that you, know, you were going to put this work out there and it would be a thoughtful piece of work that people could en- engage with. Uh, does that mean you, you weren't anticipating the, the degree to which um, that would be experienced as a kind of betrayal of everything that we believe in? It, it, you weren't expecting that um, level of response, I suppose?
1: Um, I, I had had enough experience to know that when American evangelicals especially get angry with you, about something that you write, they find ways to communicate it rather sharply. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, when I, and I had forays on this in the past on women in ministry in the early stage in my career on, um, US sponsored torture after 9-11, I took a strong stance against that. And I remember some of the hate mail I got was rather ferocious, mainly from Christians. Mm. right? on climate change, and again, climate change has become a very politicized issue that evangelicals here are not too into, to say, to put it politely. Mm-hmm. So I've experienced pushback before, um, but but it was pushback within the community. It was, um, we think you're wrong about this, or you're consorting with the liberals or whatever. Uh, you need to reconsider, but I was still part of the we. I was part of the community. Right. Um. In concluding, even with you know, strongly biblical argumentation, concluding that LGBT inclusion, were, which basically means to me that we recognize same-sex orientation, and now I would also add gender identity uh, issues, as a kind of a natural variation in the world, like left-handedness mm-hmm. um, or green eyes or something, and that it should have no moral stigma associated with it. And that LGBT people should be invited into the church on exactly the same terms with the same privileges and responsibilities as everybody else. Um, That that was seen as a bridge too far. Um, And that the evangelical community was going to do a uh, exclusion move for anybody who actually makes that conclusion. Mm -hmm. I I guess I had not anticipated that. Um, I was fairly early. There have been others since since I did my book, who have found themselves excluded for taking the same view. Um, but I kind of thought naively at the time that my stature in the evangelical mm-hmm. community and the way I did the argument would be sufficient to to make it something that people would engage as opposed to just uh, driving me outside the camp. And there was a little bit of engagement, but not much. Right. Uh, there was a brief season in which American evangelical colleges and seminaries and uh, professional guilds and so on were having some of those, let's have the talk, let's have the conversation. But really, that space closed down. Mm. And it's more like, here's our doctrine, either you're with us or you're out. Mm. That's happening in Indian denominations, congregations, seminaries, colleges, and so on. Mm.
0: Do you think there is... Well, perhaps why do you think there is um, this reaction in particular to <clears throat> maybe to sex in general, but in particular to LGBT inclusion in that conversation? Why is that such a trigger point? Because I think even, you know, in places like New Zealand and, and so on, without, we don't necessarily have the dense politicisation of evangelicalism here, but this issue is still very much a, a trigger point and in and out sort of with us or against us kind of an issue um do you have any sort of reflections on, on why that is the case on this particular thing
1: you know it's funny if you think about it um premarital sex could have been that issue but it's not um, uh divorce jesus teaches very clearly about divorce and rather strictly but by now that's not i mean that's not a trigger point issue in the same way right Mm-hmm. So, there's two, two possible accounts that you could offer of it. One is um, that a lot of evangelicals perceive this issue as kind of their last stand in the sexual revolution and culture wars. Right. We lost on divorce. We lost on, uh, you know, premarital sex, they pretty much lost, right? Uh, cohabitation, we've lost on that. Uh, we've lost a lot, but my golly, we are not going to lose on this. Mm. At least, if we do lose, it won't it won't be because we compromised on this issue or changed our thinking on this issue, right? right? So, one is the last stand when you when you keep losing battles, you can decide this is the hill we're going to die on. Mm. We're not going to we're not going to fall back on this one. The other, maybe more compelling, explanation is homophobia. Mm. That, that the visceral disgust and incomprehension that is associated with same-sex activity that is not associated with divorce or remarriage or premarital sex or even adultery, because it's straight people having sex, and we understand that. Right. Gay people having sex is, for many people, evokes a kind of... Uh, uh, hysterical and angry and disgusted reaction that is far beyond reason. Mm. And, um, and, and of course you can point to specific Bible passages that can give you ammunition for that as well. Sure. Right. So, so I think it's both maybe mm. it's, we keep losing and we're not going to lose here. And, um, the disgust factor associated with same sex activity. Mm.
0: It, uh, it it seems that sort of since um the the publishing of of that book and then the reaction to it um that that has pushed you to continue uh, reflecting on a kind of a theological and spiritual reevaluation of of evangelicalism and the move you'd movement you'd been a part of um because you could have just said, okay, well, well, I suppose, you know, this option wasn't necessarily given to you, but you could have said, well, here's one issue we disagree on and, and so I still, everything else is still fine. It's just you happen to have reacted to this one thing that I've said. Uh, but it seems that you've continued to kind of go on this journey of, of unpeeling some stuff here. Um, what was it about that journey that, that kept pushing you then in, in that direction to keep um, unpeeling some of, the, some of the stuff that you had been a part of or seen elsewhere?
1: Um well, I think there was a couple of things. Um one was that having been pushed to the margins so viciously, it kind of scales dropped from my eyes related to other groups that have found themselves on the margins or out in the evangelical world. Mm. And in other words, my privilege was taken away from me. And once my privileges as being a white straight scholar guy who got invited everywhere, once those privileges were taken away from me, I, I began to, to, to be more aware of what it was like to be on the margins of evangelicalism as a black person in America, uh, as a woman, where men still control most of the institutions or all of them. Um. Uh, or somebody who's defined as not quite theologically correct uh, based on some parameter and gets pushed out of this or that school. Mm. Um, and it's not a coincidence. I think that, so the book comes out in late 2014 in by mid 2015, Donald Trump is rising to power in the U S with the support of an overwhelming number of white evangelicals once he consolidated his grip on the Republican party. Mm -hmm. And so the, the sense that there's something not quite right with American evangelicalism deepened during this period, um, uh, xenophobia, white supremacism, racism, anti-immigrant fervor, um, uh, a lot of toxicity, I think, was both revealed in the last five years and deepened in the mm. last five years. And so there's that. Um, there, But I think what's so interesting about the latest move for me is I began to interrogate the label evangelical itself. Right. If evangelical now means socially reactionary white people who support Donald Trump. Well, what is that? Right. Did it always mean that, Mm uh, what does that word even mean? Who decided that was what this community was going to be called? Um, when Ron Sider convinced me that I was a progressive evangelical in 1990 in Philadelphia, was he right? Um, maybe, maybe that was, you know, maybe the whole, the whole category needs to be interrogated. um, and as I met more and more disillusioned younger evangelicals and post-evangelicals, my own quest to interrogate my identity ran up right next to the quest of a lot of other people, especially younger people, mm. to interrogate their identity. Um, and so I realized I needed to deconstruct the entire category that I had been a part of. Um, I, You know, you're, some of your listeners probably not know that i was not born evangelical i was born catholic Mm -hmm. and i converted as a southern baptist as a 16 year old so whether southern baptists are evangelicals is a debate anyway and then i embraced the evangelical kind of progressive label only during my doctoral program so it isn't quite as ancestral to the core for me as it is for a lot of the people who are deconstructing that identity Mm -hmm. right now um but it's core enough i mean 16 years old Southern Baptist born again that goes back a pretty long way for me yeah Um. so I maybe the way to say it is this a lot of evangelicals are not able to reconsider a doctrinal stance that now I know manifestly harms people mm. so why are they not able to do that and And then there are other aspects that harm people too, like patriarchy and purity culture and things like that. And so I wanted to ask, what is it about the way evangelicals think that is so immovable and is so harmful? And that gets me in the vicinity of this last book, you know, Mm -hmm. after evangelicalism.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, You mentioned the the T word, the the Trump word before, and uh, I don't necessarily, you know, Coming from outside of North America, that's been just a very um, strange and disturbing thing to to watch unfold over over recent years. And and despite the sort of the the era finishing, it doesn't seem like it's really finished. in, in that respect, was no, again it's not. perhaps similar to your to the response to your book was the perhaps not just the siding with Trump because I I, I could imagine a um. An expectation that people would would have an, an allegiance to the Republican Party on because of certain hot button issues, regardless of kind of who was in charge of that. But the level of um, what seems to me devotion or almost worship of of Trump uh, was was that sort of a surprise to you as well in terms of evangelicalism or.
1: It was a surprise to me. Um, that I've been puzzling over like a lot of other people have been puzzling over over the last couple of years. But I think it provides the hermeneutical key to understanding what has become of white evangelicalism in America. Right. And what's interesting is that scholars and church leaders of color, black, Hispanic, Asian, Asian American, um, especially those who already had a more radical uh, skepticism about white evangelicalism, we're not nearly as surprised as, as white people like me were. Mm. Um, the, the shocking um, disillusionment looks something like this. We believed that evangelicalism was, as it described itself, a religion of deeply devout followers of Jesus who believed in the inerrant or infallible Bible and follow Jesus where he led into evangelism and missions and discipleship, blah, 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 all of that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Evangelicalism attempted to define itself theologically and biblically with certain propositions. Um, But a lot of us feel like evangelicalism has been revealing itself in the last five years as being really about or defined by something different. And what it's really about or defined by is reactionary white maleness mm. in America, circa late 20th century. Um, books like the one by Kristen Dumais on Jesus and John Wayne got, have gotten to the toxic masculinity stuff. Um, a lot of authors, especially black authors have gotten to the white the white supremacy bit in there. Those dealing with the immigration issue have gotten to the kind of xenophobia and American nationalism that's in there. Um, authors, uh, especially female authors, have gotten to the, um, the purity culture and the harm done to young women, especially. Um, and then, of course, there's the literature related to uh, the being gay in evangelical and how awful that experience mm. has been. Um, so I think that that there are certainly many, many lovely evangelical Christian people who are not really fundamentally characterized by those problems. They're Mm -hmm. still devout, pious, Bible-believing people who live a good life, raise their family well, and are a nice part of their churches. But the overall movement has certainly proven susceptible to, if not dominated by, a lot of toxicity. Um, And different people have been identifying different Aspects of that toxicity and others are meanwhile fleeing, traumatized and harmed and angered, and sometimes driven right into atheism because mm. of what they've experienced in the evangelical world. And and that is really, really disturbing. Yeah. So Trumpism kind of revealed some toxicity that was already there, and I think has worsened it because people are a moving target, groups are a moving target. Trump is himself viral mm. he brings bad wherever he goes and that includes into the evangelical community that decided to embrace him at eighty percent mm.
0: do you think there is um because I'm interested in why I suppose there is such a um you know all of those things that you're talking about xenophobia um the racism the the, the patriarchal um stuff you know the the homophobia, um, is there, do you see a, a correlation between kind of the evangelical theological structure, if you like, or the the, the belief or the worldview? Um, because on the one hand, you sort of talk about those things, you know, oh, this love for Jesus and this love for people that means you live this life that's shaped by those things and you want to be someone who does missions and lives a life of purpose, you know, on, on, on that, one right. level. That, that sounds... That does sound kind of lovely. Um, and there are people like that. Yeah, We all yeah. know people. Um, but, but is there something in the in the kind of, not just the cultural structure, but is there something kind of in the belief structure of evangelicalism that you see making it susceptible to, to so much of that other stuff? Um,
1: um, I think one way to cut it uh, or to describe it is to say that um, – and I say in after evangelicalism that there are groups within the overall umbrella label of evangelicalism that are less susceptible to these problems. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that the more praxis oriented, the more pietist oriented, uh, people, uh, I mean, one could start with the Anabaptists with the peace and justice theology, you know, um, It goes back a long, long way before the modern label of evangelicalism was invented Mm. in the 1940s. Um, There's a Wesleyan strand of personal piety and holiness that I think um, has resources here. You know, there's a Baptist strand that that has its own resources. Um, So one of the things I say in the book is that I think the the collective modern use of the evangelical label has actually obscured some of the more constructive distinctives of some of these earlier movements Mm. and that they, that they would be better off detaching from evangelicalism and being their best versions of themselves. Right. Right. Um, but, but when you go beyond that, um, and think of the, the problematic, I think a heavily propositional oriented theology that emphasizes that what makes a person right with God is that they believe the right doctrines mm. is problematic. Mm. Um, because you can be any kind of a beastly human being you want as long as you believe the right doctrines. Right. Um, also, I think a rigid, naive inerrantism can make it very difficult for people to learn anything new in the world that we live in and to be naive about the way in which their own social location affects how they interpret the Bible. Um, and the tendency towards uh, a top-down authoritarian uh, power model, often around the pastor or the leader of the community, you almost always a straight white guy, um, uh, tends to reinforce the... Um, um, Power structures that harm people who are on the margins of those mm. power structures. So, um, propositionalism, inerrantism, naivete about power, and authoritarianism, I think, do go to the core of some of some expressions of of what we have called evangelical Christianity, mm. and that those don't appear to be reformable. Right. And so people people leave. Because they find those structures to not be reformable, mm. um, but that there are communities. I think of the Brethren in Christ um, community. You know, uh, that's where Messiah College was was uh, born. You know, and the um, you know the the pacifist Mennonites who somehow got labeled evangelicals. You know, <laughs> um, Pentecostalism I think was healthier before it got all tangled up with evangelicalism. Mm. I think there were some resources there for egalitarianism, for the Holy Spirit will move how the spirit wants to move. Anybody can be affected, right? Mm. Um, uh, and there was also an interracial impulse at the beginning of Pentecostalism that then got kind of uh, damaged, as well as a, sometimes a, a peace and justice piece. Mm. Um, Salvation Army in, out of England, a, a very you know populist, grassroots for the poor type movement. They don't need evangelicals. They're better off without being connected to the evangelical community, right? So, if you actually get more granular and look at specific groups, there's a lot of health once people get out from from the hege- hegemonic power, you might say, of the evangelical hierarchy, right? Um, and I wish that's what people would do. And I argue for that in my book. Mm. It
0: seems that in, in some respects, the the unique American situation is. I mean, there's a lot obviously going on there, historically, culturally, and and so on. But the the kind of cultural power that evangelicalism, as a as an overarching category, has has held within American Christianity and, and and American culture, has has fed some of those things that you're talking about as well. Because I think about um, I think evangelicalism, or or again that that term does once you start using it too much you realize how limited it is to try and describe the kinds of people that you're talking about but that's right yeah um you know i think about uh, my country of new zealand and there have been real efforts at times to to mirror what happened in the u.s over the last 40 years so real efforts to form a religious right real efforts to start christian political parties that would that would take back the nation for Jesus and, you know, uh-huh. these real yeah. attempts and, and always sort of because the cultural situation here is so different and, and that form of Christianity holds so much less cultural sway, um, those efforts have always been total sort of failures in, in, in many respects. <laughs> and I think that's that's been very good for, for New Zealand um, because yeah. – uh, I don't think it's for lack of wanting or trying to have that kind of power it's just been for lack of being able to get it um there's not enough people who have that belief yeah that's right. right whereas in is in the u.s there, there there has been and that's that's then exacerbated so you see a sort of a um some of the the problems we might identify say say in my context are sort of all turned up to 11 in in north america perhaps because of of some of that and um
1: It's an interesting, yeah. The the role um, of
0: power in that whole dynamic is interesting, I think.
1: It's huge. It is. And here's sometimes the way I say it, uh, and I talk about this in the book, um, also in my memoir. There was a period where, I mean, the idea that evangelicals have a missionary, even a triumphalistic kind of project, we want to win the world for Jesus. Okay. Mm. We want everybody to have the great relationship with Jesus that we have. Um, we're going to spread the gospel all over the world. So there's there's always been a kind of a, you might call it imperialistic project. Certainly mm. a uh, um, uh, a project of of uh, remaking the world in our image. Okay. Mm. All right. All right. But but that project was not fundamentally a political project. I think not fundamentally understood as a political project, until the 70s mm. in the U.S., the late 70s. Before that, politics was adjunctive. Um, you, know, you, have, you want to have access to, to senators and governors and the president. You want to bear witness to your values. But the main action is evangelism, discipleship, and missions. That was the version that of the Southern Baptists that I was introduced to in 1978. Mm-hmm. But the very next year, pretty much Southern Baptists began to sign on to a different kind of project. I actually would say the heavily politicization of American white evangelicalism is a desperation move that partly reflects a loss of confidence that that hegemony can be gained through evangelism and missions anymore. Right. Yeah. Uh, nobody's. Nobody's. Not enough people are buying our message. Okay, mm. so what we need is a political party, right, that will be the vehicle of our ambitions, mm. and that became the Republican Party. Mm. And Trump, the transactional thinker that he was, understood if you just tell those evangelicals that he that 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 he is going to embrace their project, they are going to you know jump on their hind legs and and and. Uh, uh, ask for another treat. I mean, mm. that's basically what it was like here, mm. and that's basically what it's still like. So that's such a corruption of Christian mission. There's no words for how awful it is. Mm. Mm. Um, okay, so if we
0: if we start to think about an alternative proposal, then um, one of the one of the phrases you use in, in after evangelicalism is this idea of um, of Christian humanism as a as an alternative way of approaching uh, faith and Christianity compared to the kind of theology and structure of, of all of that, that we've been talking about. So, um, could you give us a sense perhaps of how you're using that term Christian humanism, what you, what you mean when you say that and how that could be helpful.
1: You know, I, uh, was surprised to see various versions of the term humanism coming up in my research. Um, my, my thinking is very much affected by um, the Holocaust and Jewish thought, including post-Holocaust Jewish thought. And so in reading um, Martin Buber, for example, I, I ran across him in the context of post-Holocaust Jewish life, and then he moved to Israel. and He began calling in Israel for a renewal of what he called biblical or Hebrew or Jewish humanism. And what he meant was the prophetic tradition in which every human life matters. uh, It's a tradition of justice and dignity, shalom, peace, Mm -hmm. right? Um, That what God wants is the flourishing of all persons. And so he was saying in in 1947, 1952, 1962, Israel, uh, let's not do to the Palestinians what was done to us. Let's have let's have humane Jewish values, and and then I uh, as I was thinking about my own evolving theological project, I started reading Erasmus, and I was struck by Erasmus's version of Christianity in late medieval, just at the cusp of the Reformation Europe, and I contrast Erasmus's humane, learned. Uh, peaceable vision relative to the the uh, where Luther ended up and what happened on the Counter-Reformation side and the wars of religion after that. Mm. Um, so what does Christian humanism mean to me? And there's other versions. I mean, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's work has been described as a Christian humanism. Mm-hmm. Pope John Paul II's work has been described as a Christian humanism. Um, based on the ineffable dignity and value of each and every human person and group, that is made most clear in the fact that God became human in Jesus Christ um, and that every life matters, the way we are to look at people as if we are encountering Jesus himself, Matthew 25. Um, We need to identify with the sufferings and sorrows of all persons with special sensitivity to those who've been most mistreated and to direct our, um, our preaching, teaching, and mission to build a world in which all human beings can flourish, in which the dignity of all people is respected. Um, it also involves a greater humility in relation to our participation in the human community alongside others, mm. an abandonment of the kind of evangelical triumphalism where we know the truth and they don't. So a kind of a, a sense that we share in the general human condition and the general human quest for knowledge so we uh, more of an openness towards learning from others, mm-hmm. not just other Christians. So it's partly about how we acquire knowledge, um, partly a sense of less hunkered down defensiveness and more openness to learn from others, mm. um, and 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 to contribute to human flourishing, the common good, and human well being, precisely in the name of Jesus, who dignified humans just. Through
0: who he was and through how he ministered to others. Mm. Uh, it's interesting. As I was reading that section of of the book, I was thinking about um, classes that I teach, and in particular, when we bump into a conversation about something like hell, for example, and and I suggest to my students that there are more. There's more than one way. Well, I you know I offer to them that there's in fact more than one way to, to think through this issue uh, and, and that sort of people suffering forever for the, for the particular doctrinal tr- sort of beliefs that they hold might not be the, the way to see this. And the interesting response me, to me so often from, from students who are from, say, Pentecostal, Evangelical, Charismatic kind of communities is that, but if, but if people aren't going to suffer forever in hell for not choosing this, what is the point of being a Christian? Um, And I, I usually, and that question just about comes up every time that I, that I <laughs> propose that to people. Uh, and I'm struck by how sort of, how much of a tangent from, from kind of the Jesus story that seems to be and, and from the New Testament story um, and how much trouble that means we're in in terms of uh, framing up a, a kind of, um, faith and theology that that you're talking about here that actually deals with our real human lives as they are and and what it means to be human and to and to flourish alongside other humans and community because surely that's what good faith and and religion and spirituality should be helping us
1: to do. I think so. Um, I never I never talk or write about hell. Um, I'm not saying I'm not saying I believe it's inconceivable, but I think it's. It's beyond our pay grade. I think that's for God to decide. Um, I also have a strong place for the kingdom of God, the reign of God, in my theology, mm. as as you know. And so, I believe our project is not to be counting up souls based on our our uh, tote board, you know, our our accounting system, mm. but instead loving our neighbors, loving God, attempting to build. A kingdom of God kind of world to the extent that we can contribute in that in that way until until um, Jesus returns to consummate the project of the of the reign of God. So um, so I think we have so much constructive stuff to do, and the idea that somehow the core structure of our thought would be determined would be dependent upon mainly having a list in our mind of who's going to heaven and who's going to hell, it just doesn't strike me as where I want to be. Mm. I, haven't, I actually haven't been there in a long time, mm. you know? My, my thought is basically, I think, orthodox in terms of creedal, Nicene creed orthodoxy, you know? Um, with, with maybe some arguments one could have here and there. But, um, but I, I also have a strong place for what Jesus seemed to mean by the kingdom of God is this world looking the way God intended it to look, and God reclaiming, um, reclaiming a world where everyone gets to flourish as God intended when we were made mm. in the image of God.
0: Um, one of one of the things you do as well in the book is talk a bit about Jesus. Yeah, and um, and suggest that maybe the the Jesus that is often talked about in in sort of contemporary. Church life, um, particularly kind of white evangelical spaces, uh, seems to be quite different from the from the Jesus uh, of of the actual stories. Um, so, how how do you see this kind of reclaiming of a of a of the first century Jewish Jesus as a as a pathway towards this kind of faith that you're talking about?
1: Um, I was affected uh, by just. Digging around in the synoptic Gospels, in writing Kingdom Ethics, um, uh, spending a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, my favorite Gospel is Luke. I spend a lot of time in Luke. Um, I think that whatever claims people may make to an inerrant or infallible Bible, they, they tend to have sections of Scripture that resonate more deeply with them and become more central for their preaching and teaching and theology. And for me, the through line is, is the prophets and the synoptic gospel, Jesus, um, things, everything else kind of fills in around that for me. But I think for a lot of our evangelical brethren, the through line is really more Paul, um, and maybe late Paul or Deutero Paul, like, you know, first and second Timothy and stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's actually, it's quite complicated to figure out what to make of Jesus, but I definitely think that a lot of times evangelicals have not made enough of the Jesus we meet in the Synoptic Gospels, who comes proclaiming the kingdom of God, challenging religious authorities, especially where they essentially put a, put a wall between marginalized people and the love of God. Um, and um, who was a sufficient threat to the status quo that he gets he gets executed by Rome, the prophetic Jesus, the kingdom of God, Jesus, the Jesus who, who loved and conversed with women and children and tax collectors and prostitutes and sick people and lepers and dying people and people with demons, and brought deliverance. Um, so, I argue in the book that. The best version of evangelical theology that is not the one that I'm talking about, at least it gives you Jesus died on the cross for my sins. At least it gives you that. <laughs> and I believe that. But there are some pop versions that are really worse than that. Um, there's the Jesus who wants you to be a success kind of success principles of Jesus, which which um, I would describe as the kind of uh, upwardly mobile uh, young, young professional Jesus, right? Yeah. And then, and then there's the the worst Jesus of all, which is the Jesus who underwrites whatever my prejudices tell me. The mm. xenophobic Jesus, the racist Jesus, the KKK Jesus here. And that, mm. that Jesus is alive and, and ill too, mm. right? I call that the vacant Jesus, able to be filled up with whatever content we want to bring.
0: Right.
1: And that Jesus is scary um, because a lot of evil can be done in the name of that Jesus. Mm. So I call for a return to Jesus. I think I describe it as the apocalyptic prophet, um, lynched God, man, and risen Lord. Mm. And that's where I center my understanding of Jesus um, and uh, challenge uh, people to consider that.
0: That's great. Thank you. Um, all right, perhaps a final question then. Um, sure. What would you say perhaps to to um, those who are maybe still in evangelical spaces or on the edge of them but have all of these kind of questions burning away and aren't sure if it's okay to to keep on that quest? Um, do you have any sort of closing words of advice to people who are trying to figure out if, if, if that's all right and, and, and what to do about that?
1: I think that... Um... that the quest and the wrestle is, is really, really important and, and that it's worth doing. Um, I think that Christians have, have too often been about prepackaged answers as opposed to the struggle to understand and to grow. Um, I actually think that a lot of times the reason people have moved to agnosticism or atheism or hostility to the church is because It seemed like their choices were Accept everything as presented to me By pastor, professor, or mom and dad Or Abandon the whole thing and become some kind of Godless rebel mm. There's a whole lot of ground in between those two options mm. But that ground Is only discovered Through through quest, through struggle Reading, talking with people Listening to smart podcasts like yours <laughs> um, And, um, and rethinking Jesus, and rethinking what it means to follow Jesus. I think it's a great tragedy of our era that the churches and evangelical evangelicalism are driving so many people away from Jesus altogether. Mm. I'm a pastor. I want to see people have a relationship with Jesus. Um, I have students here at Mercer, Michael, who I teach a class on great moral leaders, and so we read people like um, Martin Luther King and william wilberforce and mandela and as well as non-christian leaders right and i had a student say to me recently engaging these people is the first it is the first time i've wanted to even think about following jesus in a long long time mm. um there are beautiful lives that have been about the way of jesus one, If one wants to live a beautiful life, one doesn't have to abandon Jesus. One might need to abandon many versions of evangelicalism, though. Yeah. So go on the journey, but have some guides who can help you to end up on the other side in a relationship with Jesus as opposed to kind of a bitter outsider to faith. I hope there could be some who are going to end up there, I know, but my job, my project is to try to give them some some uh, guidance to something other than just that bitter alienation. Mm. And I think that that's what after evangelicalism is for. Hopefully it's helping. I'm, I'm hearing that it is. Mm. But there are a lot of other people who are trying to do the same thing. Mm.
0: That's, um, that's awesome. And I think that's a good good place to finish. Thank you so much for your, for your time and for your wisdom and for the work that you've been doing for a long time now.
1: I really well, you're very it. welcome. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for noticing. Thank you for spending the middle of the night with me uh, in this conversation, um, and I um, I hope that people find their way to After Evangelicalism, and and maybe it could be helpful to yeah. some folks. fantastic.
0: So there's my conversation with David. I hope you found that as interesting as I did. Uh, thanks again to David for taking the time to talk to me in his busy schedule. Uh, if you want to check out more of his work, you can go to davidpkashi.com and you'll be able to find a bunch of stuff about him and his work there, as well as about his books that we've been mentioning and talking about through the conversation today. Uh, thanks, as always, to Reese Michel Michelle for making this podcast sound as good as possible with the dregs that I give him, and, uh, and I'm looking forward to the next episode of In The Shift. So, until next time.